coming and talking. Uh, <laughs> well, at least somewhere in the course of that I did. Uh, I, I don't know why I slipped a cog. Uh, I've never done it before, but uh, I was talking there about the flood and when, it, when the continents might have been divided. And I, I glanced at that chart and I knew Peleg was born after the flood, but for some reason he has the name right across the line that has the flood. And I glanced at that, and I, hey, Peleg was right there. And then's when I slipped it and uh, said, well, that division may have occurred during the flood. Now, that may very well have been true, and I think that that is probably the case, but Peleg would have not been living at the time of the flood. He, he'd have died in it, wouldn't he have? Uh, but... Uh, the division of nations at Babel may very well have been during the days of Peleg. Now, Kent Hovind, who produced that chart, uh, some of you, how many of you have seen his films? It's okay to admit it, I've seen them. Not too many. But uh, he is one of the greatest proponents of a young earth theory, that the earth only has existed for now almost 6,000 years, and shows a lot of evidence that, boy, it, it's pretty compelling but then I see some other things that people do and, you know, talking about it having been here for hundreds of millions of years and some of that's fairly convincing too when you're watching it. So I have, to some degree, mixed feelings about that. But uh, I want to go back and visit this a little bit before we move on in terms of the flood itself and try to draw a picture of what may have happened there. I don't know that I have it all right, and some of this is speculation, uh, educated guess, or, or taken from a few statements of Scripture and then try to draw a picture from that. And that's true in many parts of the Bible. You, you read what God said, and it puts you on a track, and you read something else He said, and in your mind you begin to form a picture of what was occurring. And sometimes those are not really easy to put together. Uh, then you look at the physical uh, surroundings in some cases to see how they fit Scripture. And then you might get a picture that is hopefully fairly accurate. So I hope that I can do that with this. Uh, I want to pick this up in Genesis 7. Uh, it's talking about the flood here. And it says the heavens were opened up and it rained on the earth 40 days and 40 nights in verse 12. Seemed like it did that here about a month ago. Uh, just rained and rained and rained. Uh, but it didn't come down and the, the, the earth was not broken up underneath, although it did become muddy. But moving down to verse 17... It, it says in 18 that the ark went upon the face of the waters that it picked up, and the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth. So they took over. That's what prevailing exceedingly means. And all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upwards did the waters prevail, and the mountains were covered. Now, there are those who think that the flood was only a local phenomenon, 
But I don't think that was the case. Water finds its own level. But were conditions the same as they are today? <clears throat> if the mountains, the, the high hills and the mountains were covered with water. Today we have uh, Mount Everest, which goes up to over 29,000 feet, over five miles up in the air. Now, to cover that one, the water around the earth would have to be nearly 30,000 feet deep all the way around the earth. Uh, is that the way things were at that time? Now, let's see if we can draw a picture here of how things might have been. Picture that the land mass that was showing at the time of Eden was much smaller than it is today. And that it was all one contiguous piece of ground. There were no oceans in between, but just one landmass on the earth and the rest water around it. And that it was much more gentle during that time. Uh, Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden and they did not need to wear clothes. That means that the temperature of the air was a very comfortable temperature year-round and day and night. So they were like being in a heated or air-conditioned room where you could keep it, let's say, 70 degrees at all times. Uh, because God did not make conditions there where they would have been uncomfortable. They didn't have to cover up or wear clothes at all. So everything was just right. Now, if there were not high mountains, when the flood occurred, there would not have been a need for nearly so high a volume of water as it would if the mountains were as they are today. Now, geologists have studied around the world for a long, long time now, and it has become quite obvious that there have been upthrusts where there have been tectonic plates moved, the mountains have risen. Uh, they are still in an upward motion where they go up an inch or two or three a year or whatever. Uh, Yellowstone, parts of it just raised 50 feet recently. Uh, there are still things going on. And the surface of the earth does not draw breath, but it is in one sense living. It is still moving. It is still uh, changing. Now we look upon the earth, I guess as opposed to the oceans, as terra firma, the firm ground, uh, whereas the ocean is always in constant movement that you can see. You don't see the movement in the earth from day to day, but it does move. And during major earthquakes, depending on the type of earthquake it is, you can actually see the earth ripple, just like the waves of the sea as the earthquake moves through it. So it is not as firm as you might think standing on it. Liken the earth in a way to a child that is born. When it is born, not very long, and in the first few years, uh, there's nothing particularly uh, that stands out about it. It's just kind of straight up and down, and, and uh, there's nothing 
in the development of the child that makes it stand out. So it grows for a few years, and then it hits puberty. And then all kinds of things begin to explode. It changes shape, changes form, uh, and then things that are going on in other parts of the body suddenly erupt on the face, and you have pimples, and, uh, you know, they turn red, and then they get uh, dead matter in them, uh, and then they erupt. And when you pop them, they may even hit the mirror. I'm trying to keep this fairly clean. Anyway, uh, the body goes through some monstrous changes there, doesn't it? And then for a while it kind of settles down, and everything's kind of on an even keel. And then after a while, uh, you start getting moles and growths and humps and bumps and things. Your, your discs begin to deteriorate, and then you, you get shorter, and then you've got a hump in your back, and, and everything sags and bags here and there. And, and suddenly, it's a totally different picture, isn't it? Colors change. So the body goes through this process from birth to death, where with some periods of fairly stable time in between, uh, there's some pretty drastic things that go on. And the, the same is true of this earth. The geologists have seen that you have some mountains that come up and they thrust over others. Sometimes they fold completely over. All kinds of things show that there has been a huge change. Now, they like to think, from their evolutionary standpoint, that this all happened over hundreds of millions or billions of years, and that just sort of went up there real slow-like, and in a hundred million years you might see a little bit of change. Now, I've stood on the tops of mountains, I guess on every continent, and every time I go there, <clears throat> I see pretty much the same picture. Wherever I travel, I usually try to get up on a mountain somewhere, whether it's Norway or Switzerland or Africa or New Zealand, because I like to go places like that. But when you get up on the mountain and you look, <clears throat> it looks like somebody just took a huge pail of water, I mean a really big, huge one, and dashed it there, and it ran down and cut channels off that mountain. Because there are draws and canyons and places where it looks like water worked. And they say, well, this happened over millions and millions of years and it just slowly worked down. I look at the Colorado down there and I think, man, this Grand Canyon, was it? did it take hundreds of millions to cut this with that comparatively small river at the bottom? It doesn't look that way. It looked like it was hit with a whole lot of water and then just made canyons as it went away. All right, let's say that God had made the land mass smaller and the hills much lower. And there is the theory, uh, I've heard it, oh, uh, Ted Armstrong talked about it clear back in the 60s, but Kent Hovind mentions it again and others have, that there apparently was a canopy <clears throat> over the earth of water, like a swaddling band around it. And that may have been water or water vapor, very heavy, or even ice, some say. And it cut out the harmful rays of the sun so people would live uh, 900, 1,000 years nearly. 
And then after the flood, all that water came down to the earth, and uh, mankind began to live shorter and shorter time as the effect of the sun uh, hit our bodies. Now, I don't know whether that's a true conception or not, but the Bible record does say that when it began to rain, rain came from above, and the waters of the deep were broken up. I don't think that means a little spring occurred in the bottom of the ocean and water began to come out. You got this oil rig now leaking water, I mean oil, uh, in the Gulf of Mexico. And it's coming out of a smaller hole. And yes, it's putting quite a bit of oil out there. But by comparison to what it would take to cover the earth with water up to the highest hills in the mountains, even if the mountains were fairly low, it's nothing. I think that means that underneath the oceans, there was a cataclysm that opened up huge chasms, and water began to bubble up from the center of the earth or wherever it was stored within the crust of the earth, and that band, if it were around it, began to rain, and it rained 40 days. Now, if it wasn't a band, a swaddling band that, that was doing that, then uh, somehow, some way, there was a huge cloud bank probably worldwide, that could produce rain for 40 days. And I don't mean a drizzle. Uh, it was falling hard for 40 days in order to cover the hills and the mountains. Now, what does it say here? The waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. So it Sounds like it's coming up and covering the high hills. Then it moves upward, 15 cubits, and the mountains were covered. Now, were the mountains only 23 feet higher than the hills? I don't know. Some commentators say here that it was, that it was 15 cubits deeper, the water was, than the highest mountain. I checked that in 27 different translations, and only one looks at it that way. Now, the, the ark drew about that much water because of its weight and displacement. So it might be that God caused the rain to go up 15 cubits above the highest hill so that it would not hit as it floated over it. Uh, it doesn't really say how high the mountains were. But if they weren't that high at that time, that everything was gentler and Later on, God divided the continents. It might have been during the flood that that actually occurred. Now, Kent Hovind thinks that that division of the continents, because it's quite obvious to geologists and those who study the matter, that the continental shelves match up, and that at one time, those continents were together. At some point, they went apart. Now, he thinks that the nations were scattered at Babel, and people went to different parts of the earth, and then it was divided, and they got a free sailing uh, across the ocean. Uh, but there is nothing to indicate that I know of. Now, maybe he has some information I saw and forgot or something, I don't know. But we do know that the time that the deeps were broken up, that the whole earth was covered in water and would have had tremendous currents going on, probably winds when you have that much rain and that much weather activity, it creates winds. 
So there probably were huge waves as well. Now, could it have been that the continents began to be shoved apart as the, the earth was broken up, the crust was broken up, and that Noah was safe? There were only eight people alive. So it would not have affected human life since eight were floating and the rest were floating uh, in the water. Now, if the ark is on Mount Ararat in the nation of Turkey today, that mountain is over 16,000 feet high and it is covered in snow and ice year-round. Now, sometimes... In a hot summer, you have a bigger melt than you do others, and there have been times when it appeared to people who keep saying they've discovered Noah's Ark on Mount Ararat, and it does say in the Bible that it was Mount Ararat. Is the name the same now as it was then? That's highly possible. So, if the hills were lower, how would the Ark get 14, 15,000 feet up, well, what if God began to move the continents toward the end of the flood and it just picked the ark up and just went right on up with it and that's where it stayed? It didn't have to float that high and lodge there. The mountain could have come up instead of the ark coming up. Those things happen. There's a film that came out recently, Gordon was telling me about, uh, about Mount St. Helens. It was a fairly high volcanic mountain there in Oregon. I think it was around nine, ten thousand feet. It wasn't a real tall one. But one day, like a big pimple, the lid blew off and shortened that mountain by, I think, several thousand feet. Three or four thousand feet, as I recall. Anyway, <clears throat> it deposited layers of soil, layers of ash, and so on. And over a few years, it began to look like a geological formation. And it happened rather rapidly. I mean, just in a day or two or three. Uh, and then continued. Well, then since that time, it has gained several hundred feet in elevation just from ash deposit and so on as it's continued to bubble and spew. Now, it may very well be that if he broke up the depths of the seas, we know that there's a great deal of heat in the center of the earth. And that could have set off a lot of volcanic activity as well. And lava began to flow as well as water. So look at the continents. Look at North and South America. Looks like they were just shoved right across the ocean and the far side wrinkled up into the Rockies and in the Andes. And on the front edge of the continent, especially North America, you got the Appalachians and so on, like if it was pushed it pushed up more on the west side and less on the east side. And that would have been the dynamics of how those mountains were suddenly thrust up. Now, geologists and I have seen seashells thousands of feet above sea level. 10, 12, 14,000 feet above sea level, you find seashells. Now, obviously, that land was underwater at some time. Now, if this happened fairly rapidly, it could be that from the time of the creation of the earth, uh, most of what we see sticking out of the water today may have been underwater. And the earth's 
showing on the surface could have been much smaller. Then when God began to move the continents to separate and divide them so that mankind could be kept more under control, uh, you began to have immediate volcanic activity. So you have different stratas and different layers and different types of rock all mingled together because as it got shoved, it got mixed. As the volcanoes erupted, it had lava beds thrown all over it. And to this day, it still erupts and pops and bubbles to some degree. Not like it was then, but we're seeing it more and more. Now, just the last few months might begin to show you a little bit of what was going on then, because this activity has increased. When we were in Alaska, if you're on the Kenai Peninsula, you could see St. Augustine, which began to blow the year we went there. And then you had Iliamna and Redoubt and Mount Spur, and while we were there, at one time or another, every one of those erupted. And they would smoke for months, uh, maybe even years with Iliamna. And once in a while, blow the lid off. And then you'd have ash for hundreds of miles around. So this is still going on, and now with earthquakes, you, you see the, the earth's surface is not as solid as you think. It shakes and moves and so on, almost like jelly, and it's getting more like that all the time. <clears throat> and the volcanoes blow. So things are still going on, and God said at the end time they would increase. So that is happening. I think the picture that we see here was a fairly violent picture. It wasn't just that the waters just kind of came up and then it got deeper and then the boat floated. Uh, no, when water begins to get deeper, it begins to run different places, doesn't it? Uh, you have floodplains, you have places where the water channels and makes deeper draws and canyons. And as the mountains are thrust up, that is increased. Now, if that water, that land had been underwater all that time before the flood, it would have been saturated with water. It would have been softer than, let's say, clay out here that's been baked by the sun all summer and gets very dry. When we have it gets very rainy, the bottom falls out of this clay if it gets enough rain on it. It finally penetrates it and just turns to mush. And Paul nearly lost a car out here one year. Uh, it went into the axles and the bottom of the body and just sat there because it was just a quagmire underneath. The water had saturated the clay. Now, if that stuff underneath the ocean was saturated that way and you began to move it, it would twist and push and overthrust and shove up and push other stuff out of the way, wouldn't it, as it moved. And then as it came up, the waters would run off, and if it were soft, it would make canyons. Of course, those canyons would be made deeper over the years as it rained and, you know, snow melted and so on. But did they begin in a very fast and violent way? I tend to think that is the case. And Kent Hovind had a pretty good case for a young earth. But even if it had been there a long time, it doesn't mean that it wasn't a violent thing that happened at the time of the flood. It could have still had very uh, powerful actions and reactions as a result of the continents being moved. 
So the answer to the question, has it always you know, been there for billions of years or was it just a recent creation, doesn't have to be answered one way or the other to see that there could have been great changes in the earth's crust during the time of the flood. When the deeps were broken, I think it was that they were broken up, not just began to seep. And this picture <coughs> may be the case. So in that time, as the continents were pulled apart uh, and upthrust, more land was there. The continents became bigger. The land surface that was sticking out was higher. And it has gone up and down. Uh, I just read that one of the flood plains over in, where was it? Bangladesh, India, somewhere, had recently sunk several feet. Somebody was mentioning the other day they pumped so much water and oil out from around the Houston area that it's dropped several feet. So changes still occur on the face of the earth. When I went to uh, Anchorage in 1964, five, uh, the earthquake was, the big one was in 64. And 4th Avenue right downtown was still, there was probably a ditch there 10, 12 feet deep. One side of the street was here and the stores and the other was down here. It changed just in one little shake that much. What if you'd had the powerful waters around the earth and the, the crust of the earth being broken up at the same time? And when that was all done, God gave a rainbow and said, this won't happen anymore. And he said made a statement in verse 22 of chapter 8. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night, shall not cease. Now, I think what he's making there is a comment on what had just happened. There had not been summer and winter in the Garden of Eden. There had not been uh, cold and heat. There had been day and night. And I don't know that there was even seed time and harvest because they had those trees and vegetables and other plants maybe to eat from that grew naturally. And all they had to do was dress and keep and tend it. They didn't have to harvest and plant seeds and grow gardens. It was always there for them. So the world that they had known up until the time of the flood changed dramatically. And afterward... He said that the seasons would always be there. You don't have to worry about it. You can expect it. All these things will remain constant as long as the earth remains. <coughs> I speculate that this is probably what happened at the time of Noah's flood. The division of the nations later on uh, may have been during the days of Peleg, and it may not have been that the continents were divided then, although I think that that is still a possibility. It's been speculated, and Kent Hovind thinks so. I don't remember why. It's been too many years since I saw his movie, but he might have some insight into that that I don't at the moment have. But I'm trying to draw a picture here of some changes that occurred and maybe from that time forward, the continents were divided. Now, we last night looked at the idea 
that God had showed them how to build a ship that was not eclipsed by the efforts of mankind as far as we know until the middle of the 18th century when steel uh, warships began to be built that rivaled or finally eclipsed the size of the ark. And it was very stable, six to one ratio length to width, and that's what they still use today in ocean-going vegetables, vessels. At any rate, Shem lived for 500 years after the flood. Noah lived for 448 years after the flood. Their lives overlapped as far as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was still, was probably 50, 60 years old when Shem died. So they knew these men, and they had not lost the capacity to sail the seas. And we examined a lot of scriptures last night, and I found two or three more since then, which indicated that they were shipping far and wide around the earth and hauling various uh, cargoes from continent to continent. So that being the case in the days of David and Solomon, uh, the continents had been divided for certain by that time because they were sailing from continent to continent. And the continents as we know them are known or were known during that time. So it had been divided uh, possibly at the flood, possibly in the days of Peleg, but certainly divided by the time mankind had begun to repopulate the earth. Now let's go on down in chapter 9, because it picks up the story, uh, which is where I really want to go, the story of mankind and the story of Israel in particular, since those are the ones that God chose to work through. Uh, chapter 9, verse 18. And the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Ham is the father of Canaan. Now he's going to give the genealogies a little later, chapter 10, but he mentions this one first for a reason. There was an infraction, there was a problem that occurred, and he wanted to deal with it right away before he began to show who was who. But in this case... Uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth were the three sons, and Ham had a son named Canaan. Now, Canaan and the problem he had, and I'm sure he is not the only person on earth who had a problem, but Canaan would be involved with Israel for thousands of years. And I think that perhaps the reason God notated this particular problem was because of the relationship that would continue between Shem and Canaan, and we'll pick up more of that as we get into the story. But this particular thing had consequences. Uh, These are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth overspread. Uh, Kent Hovind says that he thinks that possibly the races and the languages all uh, began at the Tower of Babel. I do not think that is the case, because God makes the statement right here that from these three was the earth overspread. So the races were there, and those three men were the beginnings of those races, they and their wives, or however it happened. And that's how the continents got overspread with the different races, was 
from these three, not from whoever might have been at the Tower of Babel. And God breaks it down that way in the tables of nations we'll get to. Noah began to be an husbandman, <clears throat> and he planted a vineyard. <clears throat> and he'd been, a, been through a lot, so he drank the wine and was drunk. Now, they, <clears throat> the commentators <clears throat> use all kinds of things to hide the fact that he was drunk, but he was drunk. That's what it says. Uh, he drank enough that he passed out and didn't know what was going on. Now, passed out, he, he certainly went into a deep sleep, I guess. Uh, I mean, there is passing out, and there's in a drunken, induced sleep. How deep it was, I don't know, and that isn't really germane to the situation. But uh, for whatever reason, he harvested his grapes and made wine, and he had too much that night. And he was uncovered within his tent. Now, it sounds as if Noah was the one who was lying there naked in his tent. <clears throat> Is that what that means? Uh, there are some things in the story that are a little hard to understand exactly what was happening, the way it's worded. But let's read it and see if we can make sense of it. Uh, verse 22, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. Now it says Ham saw the nakedness of his father, and then later on, Canaan is cursed. Well, why was Canaan, his son, cursed if Ham was the one who uncovered his father's nakedness? Let's look at Leviticus 20, first of all, and here I want verse 11. Leviticus 20 and verse 11, And the man that lies with his father's wife has uncovered his father's nakedness. So his wife was his mate, and the Bible defines uncovering your father's nakedness as, in one form at least, sleeping with his wife, your mother. Uh, both of them shall surely be put to death, their blood shall be upon them. Notice verse 13. If a man also lie with mankind as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination, they shall surely be put to death, their blood shall be upon them. One of the first comments God made about homosexuality and lesbianism. Now, let's go back and consider. Let's read on down and then maybe comment some on it. Ham saw the father... And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it on both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were backward and they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Was it just seeing him naked? I don't think so. Uh, Uncovering the nakedness is a sexual term that the King James translators used to kind of cover what actually had happened. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brethren. Now, if Ham had done something, why would he curse Canaan? Poor guy, that was his son. He didn't do it. Or did he? Let's look at this a little bit. In verse 22, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the naked of his father and told his two brethren without. Now, if something shameful were done here, 
and Ham had been the one to have actually done the deed, do you think he would have run outside the tent and say, I just molested Dad? I highly doubt it. Something like that, you would kind of want to keep quiet and not have anybody tell and hope Dad didn't remember it when he woke up. So the very fact that Ham is the one who reported the situation would seem to indicate that Ham was not the one who had trespassed. Now it may be that Ham started into the tent and saw what Canaan was doing and went out and told Shem and Japheth. And he didn't want to go back in there, so they took... I imagine Ham may have run Canaan out if he were still there. Now, was it to Noah or was it to his wife? It, might, could, it could have been either way. Noah might have been drunk uh, and, and Canaan went in to his wife. But it says here what his younger son, and a son uh, has a, another son, and that's a grandson. So it could be a general reference here to Ham's line. In other words, it was your kid that did this to me, so Ham is held partly responsible for what Canaan had done. Those things sometimes are worded that way. So it might make sense that Noah would say, hey, your kid did this. But he did not curse Ham, he cursed Canaan, who was probably the culprit in this case. Now it might have been that Canaan had sinned with Noah's wife, or it may have been a homosexual act, neither of which was acceptable. Doesn't really say, does it? And you could come down on either side of that and believe what you want to believe, but I could see room there that it could have been either way. Uh, anyway, <clears throat> whatever happened there is not the ramification or the consequence. Verse 25 begins that, and he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be unto his brethren. Now, if you go on down, you'll find that Ham had several sons. Canaan was only one of them. He did not curse all the sons of Ham or Ham himself. He only cursed Canaan, which leads me to believe even more that it was not Ham or one of the other sons, but it was Canaan himself who created the infraction. Anyway, he goes on down, uh, and he continued in verse 26, and he said... Blessed be the Lord God of Shem. Now, Noah was, throughout his life, for the most part, a righteous man, a preacher of righteousness. He knew God. You cannot say that for many, uh, from Adam on down to this point. Enoch was a man who walked with God, and Noah was a man who walked with God. So, Noah knew God, and I'm sure he taught his children about God. Probably during that hundred years they built the ark, uh, he kept telling them, come on boys, God said to do this. He didn't say go do that, he said do this. So he taught them about God and what God wanted. And they stayed on it and got the job done. But it seems that it took more, perhaps, with Shem. You know, you get... 
several kids and you teach them all the same thing and some believe it more and some believe it less and some say, you're crazy. That's just the way it is. And it may have been very much that way with Noah and his children. But he makes the point that Shem had some kind of relationship with God. Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. Canaan had created an infraction that would cause him to go into servitude to Shem. Then he says, we'll see that in just a second, And God shall enlarge Japheth, the third son, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem. So Japheth and Shem would be connected and dwell together uh, among the tents. I don't know whether that even indicates that there would be some intermarriage, <coughs> but it does appear that the Assyrian uh, is a mixture of some Japheth and some of Shem. Uh, not fully Semitic. We'll explore some of those ramifications a little further on in terms of who is related to who. And Canaan shall be his servant. Now, does this mean Canaan would be Shem's servant? Probably so. It might also include he would be Japheth's servant. But I think it's the sense of it probably is that Canaan would be the servant of Shem. Now, that becomes very, very important when we get into a history of who was where and what they did and where they lived and the relationships between and among them. Noah lived after the flood 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Well, he was 600 when the flood came, so 350 lived. I think I said 448. I took that off that chart, and I, I didn't look at it quite right. Uh, so he lived 950 years, and he died. All right, let's get on down into this then. Um, now, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and to them were sons born after the flood. The sons of Japheth, then he makes a list. Now, I've made the mistake over the years of not coming back and looking at the table of nations enough. Uh, it seems boring in some ways, uh, and you start trying to figure out who's who, and you go by the way the names sound, and sometimes that means something, and sometimes it doesn't mean anything. So we made some mistakes in identification. The church did. I have since, and probably still don't. I know we still don't have them all figured out. This is a process that we're just beginning to work through. Uh, we have worked through it enough that I think I can give you a pretty good outline of some things that are very meaningful for us today, and that's why... We're going here, uh, not just to study genealogy for genealogy's sake at all. But the sons of Japheth, Gomer and Magog, and Madai and Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tyrus, and uh, the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, and Riphath, and Togarma, and so on. And then the sons of Javan. Uh, it's interesting that Javan is only one letter different today than Japan even though some uh, say that Javan is Greek or Greece today, uh, that might be uh, the case in part. 
uh, Japan or Japan might very well be uh, from Japheth, uh, and the sun could possibly be also the Greeks. The Greeks are a little bit different from Israelites, if you look at them, in coloration and physiognomy and so on. They're a bit different. And I have heard, I've not done an extensive study, but that uh, the DNA shows Japheth in the Greeks. So if Japheth and Shem were in proximity and did some intermarrying within the, or near, in, you know, among the tents, as we read, Shem and Japheth would share the tents. They may not have only shared tent sites, they may have shared tents. And as a result, you have the Greeks, who are part Japhetic and part Semitic. And there are a lot of mixed races around the earth. And you, ha- you almost have to do a DNA study because it's hard to find them uh, just through archaeology and so on. There's a lot of confusion out there, and it's not an easy thing to sort out. They're still working on it. And mistakes are made, and then they're recalculated when they find something different, and on and on it goes. Uh, I think we can sort out some things that are uh, important in terms of prophecy in us. Now let's notice, verse 5, that these people up above this, "...by these were the coasts of the Gentiles divided in their lands. Everyone after his tongue, after their families, in their nations." So they had these children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and so on. And then at the time that they were divided... Uh, The tongues, the languages were divided because they all spoke the same up until the Tower of Babel. Then they were separated by families, by tongues, languages, and by nations. So these grew into nations ultimately, and the ones that populated the earth as we saw back in verse 19 of chapter 9. Now the sons of Ham, it lists four here, Cush, Mitzrium, and Foot, and Canaan. Now, only one of these four was cursed by Noah. God honored that curse, and what Noah pronounced upon Canaan did indeed come to pass. It wasn't just Noah having a temper tantrum, but God honored that because there was a weakness of some kind in Canaan that had caused him to do what he had did and to sin grievously against his father in some manner, or his his grandfather in that case. Now, look at the word Mitzrayim there. It will become very important because all through the Bible, when you find the word Egypt, it is not in the original text. The word is Mitzrayim. Uh, Even some of the commentaries indicate this, that there was a mistake made in translation. It should not be Egypt, it should be Mitzrayim. See, we tend to think of Egypt in a very limited sense, don't we? Throughout our history and understanding and in the history books we've read and what mankind has shown us, we think of a political nation over in North Africa called Egypt, with the Nile River running down through it. And that, to us, defines Egypt. That is not truly the case. 
When Israel was in captivity, they were in captivity in Mitzrayim. They were not in captivity in the Egypt we know. And Mitzrayim, I think we can show, was not even in northeast Africa at the time Israel was in captivity there. So that one will become very important. So the Hamitic people included Cush, Mitzrayim, Phut, and Canaan, and they were divided. You know, you have different uh, strains of, let's say, the Semitic race are through Shem. You have some that look this way and some look a little different, and they're different branches of the family. The twelve sons of Israel, for instance are somewhat different because of the DNA and the genetic structure and how they, where they settled, and, and they're a little different from each other. And the same is true of Ham and of Japheth. They became family branches. So only the line of Canaan had this curse on it, but Mitzrayim did not. It said that Canaan would be a servant of Shem, But Israel became a a servant and a slave not of Canaan, but of Mitzrayim, a different branch of Ham's family. Now you and I thought, after we saw the movie The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston and Yul Brenner, that the Egyptians were white folks or light brown folks. Or something of that nature, didn't we? Because that's the way it was depicted. Now, if you study the archaeology that has come out of the national uh, people of Egypt as it is today on the map, they say that there was the early, the middle, and then the late reign of Egypt. And, indeed, much of what they're uh, excavating there shows a lighter-skinned person. people in that area. Now, early on, they have some indications that there were Hamitic people or black people there. But one commentary or Bible dictionary I read said that that the black people were just in some small villages in the beginning of the early uh, sector of Egypt, and that that disappeared and that later on Hyksos and Assyrians and various ones came into Egypt. And that's why you have mostly the lighter skinned in terms of the art and the drawings and the various things depicting those Egyptians at that time. But those were not the people who captured, and in, or not captured, but enslaved once they were already there, the Israelite people. We'll see that as we go on here. Now, he breaks it down first to the sons of Ham through Cush. The sons of Cush, Seba and Reama, you'll see these names later in the Bible, and Sabteka, and the sons of Reama, Sheba, and Dedan. Now, was the queen of Sheba black? Did she come from here? There's another Sheba in another line. I think it's in Shem's. So, sometimes it's tricky. Which Sheba was it uh, that came there? You see, this was all a small family at that time. So names got used 
uh, over and over. Now, as they divided, that changed. We do have a number of people today who are, let's say, black people, and they are on a mission to prove that Israel was black and that uh, Christ was black and that everybody in history that was important, I guess, then was black, at least in terms of Christianity. That's a movement that's going on among some people who are motivated to prove that their race was the dominant race. I corresponded with a lady oh, back in the Midwest when I was in uh, Charlotte for some time, and she sent me piles of books that were just beating that drum. There was very little of substance involved in the books. There was a lot of emotion, and there were a lot of illogical things that were drawn together to try to prove the point. But I think that it is quite clear uh, when you examine the real evidence that the Semitic peoples were essentially the pale faces. Ham was of the black races and Japheth was uh, the, let's say, yellow races or that, that uh, shade. It should be obvious, shouldn't it? Who had some kind of relationship with the God of creation? Who, in the end times here, still had the Bible? Who has promoted the Bible around the world? Was it the Asians? Was it Africans? No, it was essentially the white people. You look through a phone book in China, Hong Kong, and you won't see Jacobson or Jacobs. You'll see Hong Chok or something like that. But you won't see anything that sounds like the Bible. You go through the Semitic uh, countries, and you'll find those names repeated over and over. Denmark, and, and you'll find a lot of people named Dan and so on in Denmark and parts of Germany. And uh, it doesn't matter, Ireland, England, wherever you go, you find biblical names repeated over and over. If I were to look for New London, I would not go to China or Japan to try to find it, or to Tanzania, or Tanzania, I should say. I would look in England or in the United States is where I would look. So, I mean, some of these things are so obvious, and yet people will try to make a case a different way. And we won't go into a lot of that. I think we all probably here understand that. I just want you to, to know that there is, a, in a way, a racist or fringe out there that will try to prove some illogical things that don't make any sense at all. Uh, and then we have the church. And I want to point out at this point that Ruth Shelton has been wonderful in starting some of these studies uh, but Ruth does not have at all the approach that these people I've been talking about here have. She wants to know what the truth is. She wants to know what God did and what the Bible record is. And she has a wonderful attitude uh, about it, and I have felt no racist leanings whatever, and wherever uh, someone of the tribe of Ham uh, infringed or committed a sin, she's quite willing to say, yes, that was wrong, shouldn't have done that, uh, and it does not take a racist view on it. 
and I hope that all of us are beyond any of that at this point, and if we're not, I hope we get there quickly, because we're going to need to. Uh, you know, it's easy for us to point fingers at somebody of a different race and say, well, that person committed a sin, that person committed a sin. Well, David was one of the leaders of Israel, wasn't he? Shall we go there? <laughs> you know, uh, there's a lot of places we could go and show that naked was, I mean, uh, naked. <laughs> Noah was drunk on his butt. Uh, was that good? No, that was probably a sin, I suspect. It wasn't the best thing to happen. And as a result of him being out of it, some things happened that might not have happened had he been sober. So, you know, it's easy for this race to throw rocks at that race, but, you know, there's, there's always rocks coming back. You just can't, you can't go there. You can't do that. Uh, Adam was probably a red man, and he represents us all, and he sinned, and every one of us have sinned since. So, let's not point any fingers in terms of going through this. Let's just take it and read it as God relates it, because that's the true story. And let the chips fall where they will. And it does not have necessarily implications for you and me right here for this reason. You and I, and I said this last night and I'll say it again, are not bond nor free, we are not Greek nor Jew, and we are not male nor female in God's view as Christians. As followers of Christ, we're all exactly the same. Now, as I look out, I can see people of different races, mixed races. Uh, every one of us here is mixed in some form or fashion. And I see, lo and behold, some of you look male and some of you look female. I guess that's just a delusion because Paul said that that doesn't exist. No. In physical terms, we still have whatever genetic makeup we have racially, and we have whatever makeup we have heter or sexually, male or female, and there is the capacity to be slaves or not slaves. Now, we're not to be slaves of this world in its way, so we're to be slaves of Christ. So I look at all of you, and you're all slaves. You have voluntarily enslaved yourselves to do every wish, every whim, every desire of Emmanuel, the soon-coming king. So, in terms of you and I here together, we are not to look upon ourselves as anything but one and the same, spiritually speaking. God has brought us here as one body, and He has joined the bodies together as He saw fit. And if He started working with Israel... He decided to graft in the Gentiles and make salvation available to every person on earth. He did it in the church, and then in the millennium, He is going to graft in all peoples into His kingdom so that every piece of every race has opportunity at salvation. So, let's put aside anything that is apart from that picture and be sure that we do not have any of that in our hearts and minds. That is a part of overcoming, it is a part of growing, it is a part of coming to think as God thinks instead of the way your neighbors in Georgia, Alabama, or Mississippi happen to think, for instance. Think like Christ thought. 
don't know how far I'm going to get here. Uh, he starts down through the sons of Cush. I got through most of that. And then Cush, in verse 8, begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. Now, it talks more about Nimrod a little further on because he became a great leader on the earth. But he, too, was of Ham, a black man. He was a mighty hunter before, or the Hebrew seems to indicate more against the eternal. He did things that were contrary to the way of God. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter against the eternal. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Eric, and Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. So he began to build in the land of Shinar, which I do think is in that area uh, near the Turkish mountains and east into uh, Iraq and Iran and the area of Mesopotamia as we know it. Uh, that's where that civilization of man after, the Noah, after Noah's flood, I think, or God's flow, the flood that Noah survived, I guess. Uh, we call it Noah's flood. But I believe that's where mankind began to rebuild. Now let me say here that I believe the Garden of Eden and the Promised Land was on this continent we're on today in North America. Uh, that that's where God started it. And that's where mankind was for the first 1,650 years. Then came the building of the ark and the floating. And once the waters came up over the mountains, they stayed for 150 days. That's quite a while. You can float a long way in 150 days if there are currents of water. And it would have been quite easy for the ark to have floated from... Now, if the, now let's say if the land mass was smaller, it would be even easier, and the mountains weren't as high from where the ark lifted off, and then floated over to what today is very possibly Ararat, the present location of the ark. The Bible does say it landed on Mount Ararat. Is that the same Ararat that's in Turkey today? Probably. And are they finding it and seeing it there? Probably. And will it someday come out to prove who God is and that the flood actually occurred? I've always thought so. I've always thought a lot of those things from the Old Testament that God did would probably turn up right at the end to show the world that God is God. Now, we are the ones who are to do that by learning where the true Jerusalem is and building the temple there <coughs> and beginning to rebuild Jerusalem. I hope it's we. I hope we're involved in that, and I hope there are those who come to help us. That's the way it's laid out. We're the ones that have the knowledge of it, so I would assume from that God wants us to be involved, and we're the ones He would add it to. I don't say that to make us sound better than anyone else, God always takes the weak and the base to confound the mighty. So if we were chosen, that indicates that God considered us weak and base, except for one or two of you, and you know who you are. The mighty and the noble among us. The old thing about 
thee and me, and sometimes I wonder about thee. <laughs> but, let's suppose that the Garden of Eden were on the western side of the landmass, and that the ark floated higher than everything that was there, and then the cataclysm of all the things that happened maybe to divide the continents during that time, make them bigger, make them steeper, uh, cause all the mountain building that may have occurred very rapidly. And if the water was not that deep, the mountain started rising, what if the one under the ark started rising and it just came on up and up and up and up and it got up to 13,000, 14,000 feet where the ark was on it. Some of it went to 16, but the ark wasn't quite that high. And then it just stopped going up and there the ark was. Did the water, did the mountains have to be that high and then it float over it and then come down on it? Not necessarily. The mountain could have risen. And then God would have protected the presence of it or the location of it by a high mountain producing uh, glaciers and ice packs and snow so that it could not be easily found. And then the geopolitical structure of the nations, once we had the technology perhaps to find it, through satellite images or whatever, uh, caused it to be in such a communistic-type government that they wouldn't let you go there. They have now made it what we would call a national park, where it is supposedly sitting. Now that would mean that if the continents were separated and, the, and Eden was to the west and it came over here, and I think that that is the case, because God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he would give to him, to his seed, and his seed seed forever, a certain land. And that in the end time, Israel would be in that land. Now, if that prophecy is fulfilled, I've said this before, and I think it is one of the strongest scriptures there is. Where Israel is today, and especially the firstborn son Ephraim, is where the original promised land was. And that cannot be the Middle East because it is a collection of mixed peoples and a few uh, Edomites and a very few, perhaps, true Jews who did not go there until 1948. Now, think about this. When Israel came out of Mitzrayim, a black captivity, they went to, well, they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, and then they went into the land of Canaan. Canaan was of Ham. Canaan was black. So they had been in captivity to black people in Mitzrayim, and God had allowed the Canaanites, those who came from Canaan, black people, to inhabit the area where the promised land was, where Eden had been. And they had founded a city named Jebus, which was named after a branch of the family, the Jebusites. So black people founded the city of Jerusalem. 
And they lived there, but God had promised that land where Eden had been to Abraham. Now picture this. The ark had floated to Ararat. Noah and his family had come down the mountain and settled there east of Ararat on the plain of Shinar, where presently it begins with the Tigris and Euphrates and goes east and north from there. And that is why uh, Nimrod, a few generations later, began to build cities, and that is where the population center was. So it was a cradle of civilization. It was just that it was the second cradle of civilization. The first cradle of civilization had been Eden. And it had drifted west at some point. So the Assyrian and later the uh, Persian and Roman and Greek empires washed back and forth across that area of Eurasia. So, there was a substantial civilization there that is still being dug up by archaeologists, and that does not argue with the biblical record if you understand what happened. The families settled there, Maybe I'm getting a little ahead of the story here. We'll, we'll, I, I need to be going through the scriptures. But you kind of have to draw a picture and then show it and back it up. But I believe that mankind began to implode upon himself and repopulate uh, in that area uh, of Eurasia that we're discussing. And it says that when after Abraham was born... He lived in Mesopotamia, that area, and later on, God moved him to Haran, which is only one letter different from Iran today. And from there to the land of promise. He told him to leave his family, his land, everything that he had there, and go to another land that God had promised him. And when he got there, God told him, look around, and everything you see north, south, east, and west of you is yours and your families forevermore. So Abraham had departed. Doesn't say how far he went, does it? But we saw last night that at the time of the flood, they had capacity to go overseas. And that the people who lived at that time lived for hundreds of years, Shem, and could have imparted that knowledge. Noah lived there for, what, 350 years after the flood. He's the one that built the thing. Very easy for them to instruct people on how to build ocean-going vessels. And the Bible is full of world trade going on. Anyway, they were concentrated in that one area, okay? And after Babel, they were scattered. So they went here and there. Well, it appears Japheth basically went east and inhabits Asia today. That Ham either went uh, east through the Mediterranean and across to North America 
later to South America, or I think perhaps more probably, went down through Africa, crossed the sea there by ocean currents, or river currents they called them then, to South America, later up to North America, and went to and found the original Garden of Eden. Of course, the cherubim were gone then, and if there were volcanoes, they had probably been silenced by then, and they settled up here. Now, you can go through and find black presence all through South America. Have you seen pictures of the Olmec culture? They've got round stones six, eight, ten feet high that have clearly Hamitic features. Could not be anything else. They have others who have Asiatic-looking features. Now, evidence of a black culture in South America abounds. I will not go into all that. There are books and books about it. There are archaeological findings and pictures of it. And there are legends among the black people in Africa today of having crossed the sea toward South America. Uh, there has been much uncovered in North America. Some of it shows Hamitic people. Uh, they have hidden many things. Uh, they have uncovered on the East Coast, all kinds of villages and towns built by the Vikings. There are mounds that have things from Europe. Uh, there is not as much evidence being uncovered in North America yet as there is in South America. Much more has been discovered there, but some has been discovered in North America, and Smithsonian and the government has removed a lot of it or hidden it, or not told about it, or declared it an elaborate hoax. But let's think logically for a moment. When you mix black and white, you get brown. When you mix yellow and black, you get brown. There was no brown race. There was black, white, as we call it, and Yellow. Those were the three, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But all through South and North America, when white man finally got here in the 15, 1600s, all they found for the most part was brown people. Now you'll find some darker ones down in the Caribbean and so on who may have uh, bred there from ancient times. Maybe they were brought there as slaves uh, when the slave trade occurred in North America. And then you have them more black than brown in that particular case. But when you examine the DNA of the peoples of North and South America, you find a mixture, particularly in the far north of North America, of Asiatic and Semitic blood. You find the same thing in South America, and you find some uh, Hamitic DNA in South America and in North America. So, quite obviously, if you have brown people inhabiting primarily two continents, 
How did they get there? Somewhere in history, blacks, whites, and Asiatics had to be on those two continents and mix together and produce brown. And then those who had been black and yellow and white either withdrew or were killed off or were melded into it so that nothing was left but brown. But it had to be that those colors had to have been there in order to produce brown in the first place. Okay? So we have record of great movements of people. And I think this is not exact yet, and we're putting together the biblical story And I'll show you more of that later. I'm just trying to draw a picture here. That when Babel occurred, Nimrod had built cities. God does not like cities. He hates cities. He said, Woe be to him that builds house to house and field to field in Isaiah, so that a man has no room. God intended man to have elbow room. He did not intend people to live too close together. He did not want the fields to be too close. He wanted us to be able to raise our families with peace and not have fights with our neighbors. And the more you draw together in cities, the more problems you have. That is a great deal of what's wrong with the society and the culture of the world today. But Nimrod began to draw people together in cities, and they all spoke the same language, even though they were of different races, and they decided that they would build a tower that went to heaven. Now, God said that nothing would be restrained from them that they imagined to do. I do think that probably between Adam and the Noatian Deluge, probably there was a high degree of technical knowledge available. There are indications, as I said last night, that they may have even had jet aircraft uh, before the flood, and perhaps that technological age that had developed, and remember ours only developed in over about 100, 125 years, from riding a horse or walking to going into outer space happened in a little over a hundred years with degenerate, unproductive people that live and die uh, and so on. Back then you had people who were closer to creation, sharper, brighter, and lived and their knowledge accumulated over time. So it could very easily have happened. But also, if the theory is correct that at the time the deeps broke up and the mountains were jumbled and moved and upthrust and curled over and everything else that we see in a jumble today, uh, that evidence could have been very easily buried by God so that we don't even know that it ever existed. Now, God is not the author of confusion. I meant to say that earlier. Uh, You look at southern Utah and the landforms and the rock formations that are here, 
And I think you'd have to scratch your head and say, that looks kind of confusing. How do I get from here over there a hundred miles? And you've got this labyrinth of tunnels and rocks and up everything twisted a thousand different directions. And you look at the mountains, and they're beautiful and inspiring to us because of height, because of elevation, because of snow and trees. But it is not an ordered land, is it? It's a jumble of various different landforms and somewhat confusing to look at. I think God originally created it in a much orderly, more orderly fashion, and it was much more gentle than it is today. Now, there were hills and there were mountains. How high they were, we don't know for sure. But I think everything was far more gentle and more under control than the masses you see today. I don't think you had volcanoes popping off at that time, and I don't think you had earthquakes. God had made it and said it was very good. Now, if you were born on the side of a volcano and you saw lava flowing out about to engulf you, you wouldn't say that's very good. But if you had a gently rolling, maybe a few mountains, landscape that didn't have earthquakes and tornadoes and some of the violent, some of the landforms that caused some of these things to happen, even the violent winds. Some places are far more prone to wind than others because of the landforms. So, uh, did God create a much gentler earth, and then later, because of man's sins, drown it and twist it and confuse it somewhat from what it had been? Very good may have been a whole lot better than it is today. I doubt in the, origin, in the original... We had deserts and thorns and cacti and all that stuff. Now, when he kicked them out of Eden, the whole earth might have been beautiful, like Eden. And he may have created the thorns and thistles and things that bite and sting and poke. Uh, at the time, he kicked them out of the garden and made life much more difficult. So the topography was harsher. Uh, the animals and plants were harsher. Everything became harder after Eden, and perhaps even more so after the flood itself. Because it does seem that when mankind sins, and sins egregiously, God makes life more difficult. And we're going to see that pattern create, or repeated here in the end time, when life gets unbearable and even unsustainable, because of our sins here at the end. And we're going to have earthquakes and upheaval, uh, volcanic activity, and natural disasters, it says in Matthew 24 and Luke 21, on a par that we've never had before in our experience. So it would make sense that God made things harsher after Eden and after the flood or at the flood, and now he's going to make them even more difficult here at the end so that no flesh would be saved alive except God intervenes. Now, part of it at our own hand with the violence of war, but part of it because of the sun being heated seven times hotter and volcanoes and earthquakes and all of those things that are predicted to come. <coughs> so what I'm describing here in my picture I'm trying to draw for us is something that is predicted to happen in the near future, 
And I think we're beginning to see that start to happen already. If you've noticed lately how much things are beginning to shake more than they were 10, 20, 30 years ago. Uh, It's beginning to come alive in a way. So it's getting much, much worse. Well, that's a start into the story and a little bit of the picture. Uh, That's about all the time I have, and it's a natural stopping place, so let's quit there for today.